Scripture will be taken from 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verses 23 through 26. If you're following along in the red Bible in the pew in front of you, that would be on page 958. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brother Glenn just read a passage about the Lord's Supper. And it's good for us to spend some time thinking about what we're supposed to be doing when we observe the Lord's Supper. I mean, that's not necessarily what this particular lesson is all about, but this is a suggestion for you. What do you think about during the Lord's Supper? When the man stands at the table and prays for the bread and then you peel off the top of your, of your little package and eat the, eat the bread, what goes through your mind? And when we, when we talk about the blood of Jesus and we drink the fruit of the vine, and what are you thinking about? A lot of people like to think about passages of Scripture. In fact, one of the reasons why we have a Scripture reading before the Lord's Supper is so that we can focus our minds on what we're about to remember because the cross is so important, God wants us to remember it weekly. Every first day of the week, God wants us to think about what the cross means. It's that important. It's a memorial, if you will. It's like those memorials, those monuments in Washington, D.C. that commemorate many great periods or people in our history. And you can go and visit those monuments and you can remember what those people or what those events meant to our country. The cross, the Lord's Supper, does that for us on the first day of every week. So what do you think about? Some people like to think about songs. It's been one of my favorite ways to meditate over the years as I observed the Lord's Supper. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Or, as we just sang a moment ago, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We're supposed to think about the cross. This has been something that's helpful to me. I've preached this sermon here before, but it's been 2016 when I preached it. How many of you were not here in 2016? Show of hands. A lot of us were not here in 2016. I was, I was absent that day, John. Okay. This is a sermon well worth remembering though, because what I want us to do this morning is I want us to remember to keep our eyes on the cross. And this is a way to meditate during the Lord's Supper, but this is not just about the Lord's Supper. This particular lesson is about keeping your eyes on the cross every single day of your life. And it's a very simple outline. If you can count to seven, you can remember the outline this morning. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Because what we do with each one of those numbers is we remember something about Jesus, something about the cross, and something about what it means to us. And if you're looking for some way to meditate and to think about what the cross means during the Lord's Supper, may I kindly and humbly suggest this is a great way to do that. 
Let's talk about the cross this morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter two and look at verses six through nine with me. We're gonna start with the number one. When we think about the cross, brothers and sisters and friends, there is just one Lord. There is nobody like Jesus. Nobody who has ever lived has done what he's done, has been who he was. Nobody else could have saved us from our sin. In Philippians 2 verses 6 through 9, we'll read that in just a moment. But preliminary to that, we need to appreciate that the Jesus that we serve and the one who was hung on the cross, he was sinless. He had done nothing wrong. 1 Peter 2 verse 22. As a matter of fact, his entire life was devoted to doing nothing except for good works. He went about doing good. Here was somebody, the only person in all of human history who went about and everything he did was exactly right and was exactly good. And everything he did was to help people go to heaven one day. That was all he was about. He wanted people to be saved. He wanted people to know God. He wanted people to have a relationship with him. And if you look at who he was, his identity, if you're looking at Philippians 2, verses 6 through 9, listen to what the writer says about Jesus. It says, being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What that passage means in verse 6 is that we are looking at God himself when we look at Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, verse 6. He is divine. There is, there's no way to escape that conclusion as you read this passage. But then look at what it says in verse seven. Even though he's divine, he does not count it a thing to be grasped. He doesn't count it robbery to be counted equal with God. Look at what he does in verse seven. It says, he made himself of no reputation and he took the form of a bondservant and he came in the likeness of men. He became like you and me. And he humbled himself, it says in verse eight, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him, given him the name which is above every name. It says in verse 9, Jesus came down to this world. He is God in the flesh. He humbled himself. He served God and he died for you and me. When we think about the cross, we need to think about who it is that we're remembering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you ever, ever wonder whether God loves you, the proof is found in the cross. Romans chapter five, verse eight, God manifests, he shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One Lord. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and then I will take it up again. Jesus died for you. And as we remember the cross, we need to remember the one Lord, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, who died for us. But secondly, the number two, as you meditate and think about the cross, remember the two thieves that were there? Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah, Old Testament prophecy, chapter 53, and it's fascinating what Isaiah has to say 700 years prior to the cross about the two thieves, the people that would be there with Jesus while he was crucified. In Isaiah 53 verse 12, God says, speaking of this suffering servant, I will divide him a portion with the great, Isaiah 53, 12, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul into death and, watch this, he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
The passage says that this one who's going to redeem us from our sin, he's going to be suffering as if he were the one doing the wrong thing as well. He was numbered with the transgressors. There were three crosses there at Calvary as we're about to talk about, and two of those three were thieves. One of the Old Testament commandments, the Ten Commandments was, thou shalt not steal, Exodus 20 verse 15. Stealing, theft was a capital crime both under Judaism and under the Roman law. And so that was why those two men, not Jesus, but those other two were being crucified. They were suffering for their sins. Not Jesus though. Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. If there's any injustice at the cross, it's the fact that Jesus, the innocent one, is giving his life for us, the guilty ones. And there's something of that represented in the fact that he is numbered with the transgressors. He's dying with two thieves at either one of his sides. Looking at Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse 9. The Bible says, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus died, and when he died, to all the world, from a human perspective, he looked like just another criminal. He looked like just somebody else who was suffering there for his own sins, for his own crimes, and yet it was for our crimes that he died. There were two thieves on either side of the Lord. As you continue with this outline, one Lord, two thieves, consider there were three crosses that day. Three crosses. Open your Bible to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, and I want us to think about the fact that at Calvary, there was not just one cross, but three. You know, sometimes if, when people do artwork and, and, and they make paintings and portraits and things like that of the cross, sometimes, and understandably so, sometimes there's just one. But in reality, if we were there on that day, if we saw the horrific scene of what was happening, we would have seen three crosses, one, two, three. As a matter of fact, John tells us in John 19 that they crucified the thieves, one on either side of him. So Jesus was in the middle. But as you look at Luke chapter 23, I want you to notice some things about these three crosses. In Luke 23 verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed Jesus and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. So here is a man who is dying for his own sins, looking at Jesus who was dying for the sins of the world, and he's mocking him. You can almost hear the mockery, the irony in his voice. You're dying just like I am, Jesus. Save yourself. Oh, and save us too if you're able to do that. Rebellious to the end. And did you know that some people live their lives that way? They live their lives in rebellion to God. They don't respect him. They don't respect his law. And they rebel against everything that's right and good and noble. And they will go to their deaths. They will go to the very last moments of their life still being rebellious to the Lord. There are a lot of people like that thief even today. In 1 Peter 2 verse 23, the Bible speaks about Jesus in this very instant. Jesus didn't, didn't talk back. He, he didn't say anything snarky or, or sarcastic or he didn't try to set this thief straight about why he was wrong. Jesus just like a lamb led to the slaughter remained silent in the face of the accusations of his enemies and even the thief on the cross that was accusing him. In 1 Peter 2 verse 23, it says when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. He did no sin, no deceit. He just committed himself to the one who judges righteously. 
But then there was another thief. In Luke 23, beginning in verse 40, the Bible says in Luke 23, verse 40, the other thief rebukes the first one and says, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus made one of the great promises in all of scripture. He said to a man that was dying on a cross, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All of a sudden that changed that man's experience. That man was dying and he had no hope and suddenly Jesus spoke a word, Jesus made a promise and that man all of a sudden saw death completely different, differently. And friends, when you come to Jesus and when you humble yourself and when you allow his gift to change your life, it'll help you see death differently as well. I believe one of the great needs in our society right now is for people to look at death in a biblical way. I believe we ought to see death not just as the end, but as a entrance into something else because that's the way the Bible describes it. Where will you be when you die? Jesus said to this thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And some people want to read that and say, well, you know, Jesus could, heal or could forgive the thief on the cross and therefore we don't need to obey God's plan of salvation as, re as revealed in the New Testament. A couple of things. In Mark chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, I, the Son of Man, have the power on earth to forgive sins. While Jesus was here on this planet in the flesh during his earthly ministry, he could forgive sins any way he wanted to. If Jesus told you your sins are forgiven, it was true. And so when Jesus told that thief, your sins are forgiven, it was true. You will be with me in paradise. It was true. But now Jesus has made his will plain. So you and I don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder, has Jesus forgiven my sins? Has he cleansed my sins? Because Jesus has given a very clear plan in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter two, verse 38, the people that asked men and brethren, what shall we do? They wanted to be saved. In Acts two, verse 38, the apostles said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wonder whether Jesus has forgiven our sins because we can read in the New Testament what the plan of salvation is and we can obey it. I'm thankful that Jesus forgave that man at the cross and I'm thankful that he can forgive me and he can forgive you too. We need to listen to what scripture teaches. There were three crosses. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, four pieces of his garment. As you think about this outline, one Lord, two crosses, or two thieves, three crosses, four pieces of his garment. Excuse me, John chapter 19. John chapter 19. In John 19, beginning in verse 23, Jesus had clothing. And we don't often think about this, but when they crucified a man, they took his clothing away. It was part of the shame. It was part of the humiliation. It was part of the embarrassment. You should never have committed this crime. You should never have acted so wickedly. And we, the government, are going to make sure that you suffer. And you suffer a lot before you die. Because in the ancient mind, that was how you punished somebody. You know, in our Constitution, we have rules about no cruel and unusual punishment. You know, we've written that into the Bill of Rights. No, no cruel and unusual punishment. But they had no such laws in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, the way they thought, death was the release. So when somebody died, 
okay, their punishment is over. We think death is the punishment itself, but no, that wasn't the way ancient people thought. Ancient people, they wanted to make sure you suffered as much as humanly possible because that was your punishment. The fact that they invented the cross and they invented these other strange ways of torturing people to death was, was testimony to the fact that they thought if somebody has grievously sinned or been wicked or broken a law, we want to make sure they suffer. And so part of the suffering of the cross was that they took your clothing away and you hung there with no clothing. What did they do with Jesus' garment? Look at verse 23. The Bible says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, each soldier apart, and also the tunic. And the tunic was without seam, woven in top from one piece, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, verse 24, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, that's Psalm 22, 18, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. As I in my mind replay the events of the cross and what Jesus suffered for you and me, Isn't it strange to think and to visualize the hardness of heart, the callousness, the cruelty that must have characterized these soldiers? I mean, they were used to crucifying people and they always stationed a guard there at the the foot of a cross because they didn't want people's families to come rescue the one that was being crucified. They didn't want their friends to come take them down that they might survive. They wanted to make sure that people hung there until they died. And sometimes it took days for that to happen. And so the soldiers were there at the foot of the cross What are we going to do with our time? Well, there are the people being crucified, two two thieves, and this Jesus says he's the king of the Jews above his head. Tell you what, let's gamble for his clothing. And that's what they did. They cast lots. They gambled for his clothing. There are some people that when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to the cross, they think that Jesus, they think that the cross is a place to get wealthy, to get rich. Some people think that godliness is a means of gain, it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. And certainly you see some of that spirit in these soldiers. You also see their callousness, their hardness of heart. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 speaks about people who are past feeling. There are people in this world and maybe you and I might be headed that direction. If we're not careful, we need to pay attention to our hearts head in a direction where you repeatedly violate your conscience over and over and over again and it gets to a point where you know what? Wicked things don't bother me anymore. It doesn't bother me that I'm doing this. First Timothy chapter four, verse two speaks about people who are so defiled in their consciences that their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. How can you sit at the foot of the cross and play games? How can you sit at the foot of the cross and gamble for the clothing of this one who is being crucified and not want to know anything about him and not want to pay any attention to why he's being, what, what crime did he commit? There sure does seem to be quite a uproar over what's happening with this Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't seem to ask any of those questions. Four pieces of his garment. The number five, there were five wounds. Five wounds. Oh, you could say there were more wounds than that, but when it comes to the actual cross itself, Jesus had had a crown of thorns put into his skull. Jesus had had his back lacerated with a scourge. 
Jesus had endured mockery and he had endured people slapping and punching him. All those things had happened, yes, but when it came to the cross itself, John 19 verse 18 just says simply, they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side. They crucified him. You know, oftentimes when people would crucify someone in ancient times, it was a lot easier to just wrap their hands and their feet with ropes, lash them to the cross. That's not what they did with Jesus. The Bible says, and this was according to prophecy, the Bible says that they drove giant spikes through his hands and they drove a spike through his feet, four wounds, his hands and his feet. This had been prophesied a thousand years earlier and it's interesting to think about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the cross. And Psalm 22 was written by someone who had never seen a crucifixion because crucifixion had not been invented yet. Isn't that astounding? God was accurately predicting what was going to happen to Jesus at the cross a thousand years before it happened and nobody had even seen someone crucified yet. You talk about a testimony to the accuracy and the integrity and the divine nature of Scripture. In Psalm 22 verse 14, the Bible prophesies that his bones would be out of joint. You know what they would do? They would nail you to a cross and then they would lift that cross up and they had a hole dug so that the the post, the bottom of the cross would go down into the pole. And when that happened very often, shoulders and joints were dislocated and so in prophecy in Psalm 22 verse 14 all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax we think about the cross we think about those five wounds of Jesus if you're looking at John 19 verses 31 through 37 it was the preparation day in John 19 31 so that the bodies would not remain on the cross they were going to break the legs of those that were being crucified that they might be taken away So the soldiers came, verse 32, and broke the legs of the first and then the other who was crucified with him. Both of those thieves, by the way, outlived the Lord. They both died after Jesus did. But one of the soldiers came to Jesus in verse 33, and when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out, signifying that his life had already ceased. John says in verse 35, I saw this myself, I've testified, my testimony is true. And then it says in verse 36, these things were done so that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. The wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet, the wound in his side. When we think about the cross, remember the wounds. Why did he do that? Why do you allow that to be done to him? Because he loves you, because he loves me. Six hours, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark is really chronological and Mark likes to tell you how long things took. And Mark is in a hurry to tell his story as he, as he explains the gospel. In Mark chapter 15, Mark 15 tells us how long it was that Jesus suffered. Mark 15 verse 25. It was the third hour, that's nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. So nine o'clock in the morning, Mark says, that's when they nailed him to the cross, that's when they put that post in the ground, that's when the soldiers began to cast lots for his clothing, all those things. Then when you get down to Mark 15, verses 33 and 34, now when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. 
At the ninth hour, verse 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured this suffering, this torture, this shame, this oppression. He endured this for six long, excruciating hours. And even that word, excruciating, the etymology of that word, the cross is in the middle of that word, isn't it? The excruciating nature of what's being suffered for six long hours. Why did he do that? Why did he listen for six long hours to the the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews and the common people mocking him and saying, come down from the cross if you really are the son of God, save yourself. Why did he do that for six hours? Why did he listen to the thief revile him and say, if you are the son son of God, save yourself, come down from the cross. Why did he do that? Because he loves you, because he loves me. In Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, turn over there if you would. Let's let's just read that together. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. The Hebrews writer reflects on the excruciating nature of Jesus' endurance. The fact that for six long hours, and really, if you just want to put a fine point on it, Jesus had endured hours and hours prior to being nailed to the cross of, of punishment and cruelty. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, the Hebrews writer says, consider him, think about him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You know what the Hebrews writer is saying? He's saying, keep your eyes on the cross, Christian. Consider what he endured, lest you think that growing weary is the right thing to do. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, he says in verse 4. When you think that life is too much or you just can't hold on any longer, you think that it's just not possible, I just can't take this one more day, the writer says you keep your eyes on the cross and you keep running that race with endurance. Seven sayings. As we think about the cross, Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. I'm just going to give you the references. Well, let's do this. Turn back to Luke 23 because three of them come out of Luke 23. Let's do that. Luke chapter 23. As we meditate on the cross and think about its significance in our lives, it's good sometimes to just reflect on what Jesus said because he preached his greatest sermon from the cross. Luke 23, the first saying is from verse 34, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I'm glad Jesus began his suffering on the cross that way. There was not an ounce of vindictiveness in him. There was only love, there was only sorrow for sin, and there was only a forgiving spirit. Even from the inception, Jesus wanted to forgive the people that were crucifying him. And he wants to forgive you too, if you'll let him. Luke 23, verse 43, we talked about a moment ago. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus talked about the fact that he was going somewhere else when he left the cross. His body stayed on the cross, but his spirit went to a place that he called paradise. I don't know what all paradise entails, but I want to go there, don't you? Jesus said, when, you fa- when you're faithful to me, when you come and serve me, your spirit will leave your body one day, but you'll come and be with me in a place called paradise. John 19, verses 25 through 28, he speaks to his mother and to one of his disciples, John. He looks down from the cross and he says to him, behold your mother, Mary. 
And he says to Mary, his mother, behold your son. He thinks about other people in the midst of his own suffering. You know, when we hurt, when we suffer, when we go through difficulty, we often focus on ourselves and we can't think about anybody else. We don't think about anybody else. What are they enduring? What are they having to go through? Jesus did. Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said. He experienced loneliness. He experienced emptiness. He experienced pain like no one else has ever suffered because he experienced separation from his heavenly father. John 19, verse 28, I thirst. One of the effects of crucifixion was dehydration. And oftentimes that was a reason for death. People would become so dehydrated that their body systems would just shut down and it is not a pleasant way to die. I thirst, he said. And they brought some, some, some uh, fluid on a sponge and gave it to him. And then he said in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. It is finished. It was the same word there in John 19, verse 30, that merchants in the marketplace used to, to describe the completion of a transaction. I give you the product, you give me the money, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. The price has been paid. And then if you're looking at Luke 23 again, I want you to notice the last thing. Luke 23, verse 46. Then he said to them, why do you, excuse me, Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Jesus knew that he could die with confidence because he knew that he had perfectly and faithfully served his heavenly father. He had accomplished the work that he came to do. And brothers and sisters and friends, again, when we go back in our minds to the cross and when we think about what happened there, God doesn't want us to just think about this once a quarter. He doesn't want us to just think about this once in a while. Jesus says, God says through his word, you keep your eyes fixed on the cross. When you're worried about whatever else is happening in your world, you keep your eyes there because that's where the people of God find their hope and their strength and that's where we find our salvation. Don't ever take your eyes off the cross. Maybe you need to respond to Jesus this morning. You want to obey his word. You want the forgiveness of sins that he gave to that thief. Repent and be baptized. That is the Bible's plan for you. You're not a thief dying on a cross, but you are dying and you will meet your maker one day. Repent and be baptized. You connect with the cross. You connect with the burial of Christ. You connect with his resurrection in the waters of baptism. Do that before it's eternally too late. If we can help you do that, if you need to respond, you wanna ask for prayers, whatever your need is, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.